Good morning, everybody. My name is Chris McCluskey. I'm the senior pastor over at a church called Grace Point that many of you know is a sister church to Restoration Church. And uh, it's really a privilege for me to be here this morning and get a chance to, to preach God's word. But uh, just a couple of things by way of introduction, because I've never been here before, and I'm really excited for this opportunity. But uh, you really, many of you don't know who I am, so I just thought I'd just take a few seconds to introduce me, uh, myself and my family a little bit. Uh, my wife Robin is here today. She's up here in the front. And I have uh, three daughters. Uh, Mallory is 26, Samantha is 23, and my youngest is Madeline, and she's 13. And Madeline is back at Grace Point today serving in the nursery and hanging out with uh, some of her youth group friends. But uh, next time I come, maybe I'll bring her with me. But uh, just really excited to, to be here. I've been at Grace Point for 23, what will be 23 years in January, and I've really... Uh, it's a thrill to serve God and to see the way he's worked at our church. And now to see him work here at Restoration Church is really just as thrilling. And uh, you guys have been in a sermon series called Good News. And you've looked at good news for the uh, guilty, good news for the rebel, good news for the tired. And today we're going to look at good news for the brokenhearted. And, and I'm sure many of you here today... Um, yeah, give me one second. Many of you here today uh, have experienced some sense of being brokenhearted. And in a moment, I'm going to ask Debbie Schrader to come up and give her testimony. And Debbie's going to talk about how God met her in her brokenheartedness. And as Debbie's coming up, it's a great time then for our children to be dismissed. And we have Amy here, who is the line leader. So all the kids who are going to go to Children's Church, why don't you go ahead and line up with Amy? What's that? K through third grade. So all K through third grade kids, come on up, line up with Debbie. And she will take you down to your class. I'm sorry, Amy. And then Debbie's going to come up and speak. So where is Debbie? She is here somewhere. Oh, there she is. Great. Good morning. Um, if you are a member of the launch team, members of the launch team have actually heard me share my story before. And I'm blessed to have a chance to share it again and now with our larger congregation. So if you've heard it before, please bear with me. Um, as I said the first time that I shared my testimony, I, um, I've written it sort of in a narrative form because it helps me just to keep it focused and uh, not to ramble. So I hope you don't think it too impersonal, but this is my story and I have titled it My Restoration Story. My name is Debbie and I would like to share with you my story about how God changed my life and restored me to himself. My story involves various life stages in which he used my circumstances to make himself known to me. I was raised in a home with parents who were Roman Catholic. We would attend mass every Sunday when I was young and I had a first communion ceremony and a confirmation. <coughs> I attended religious instruction in my early teens and I could recite all the prayers from memory. I do not remember a time when I did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God who died on the cross for sinners. I also know that for the first 31 years of my life, I had no real idea how that applied to me. My parents divorced when I was 14, and somehow our family going to church died with the marriage. My next church experience happened as an older teen when I started visiting a Lutheran church with my now husband Steve's family. It felt good to have the rhythm and routine of a Sunday morning and holidays again. I felt like I was checking in with God once a week. Steve and I were married at Peace Lutheran Church, and when our babies were born, we had them baptized because that's what the Lutherans do. We wanted our children to be raised believing in God and going to Sunday school. Back then, it wasn't about much more than doing something because it made me feel good about myself. As a young person, I was always filled with insecurities about relationships with other people, and I worried a lot. I never felt like I fit in anywhere, even with my own family. 
Nothing ever felt stable or reliable as my parents began new relationships after their divorce. So I began my adult life with no real sense of who I was or what I should do with myself. I struggled with anxiety and depression, and the only reason I never followed through with random thoughts of suicide was because Steve was in my life. After 27 years of marriage, I now know that the Lord used Steve to protect me from those thoughts until I could come to know him. In our early married years, I was frequently depressed and angry, and I could be generally unlovely to my husband. I know now that there was an unnamed need in me that only God could fill. I couldn't identify it, but the void kept me feeling scared and empty. I desperately wanted control over anything in my life. When I was 25, our first child was born with a severe heart defect. We named her Christina, mostly because I loved the way it sounded. What God knew was that her name meant Christian, and he was going to use her precious little life to drastically change mine. Christina spent the first two months of her life in the cardiac ICU at St. Christopher's Hospital. Steve and I were told she had about a 5% chance of survival. I was devastated and terrified. Nothing had prepared me for this. And I had no way to defend myself against the unimaginable pain of losing my child. I remember two moments very clearly from the blur of those days at the hospital. The first was my moment of hope, and the second was my moment of peace. These two instances began a life change that, over the course of about five years, brought me to Christ and began healing a lifetime of wounds. My moment of hope happened late one night, standing next to Christina's tiny body, strapped with tubes and tape and monitors. I was cried out and hoarse and feeling utterly helpless. I just couldn't believe that God would let this happen to me. I remember thinking that thought and then feeling a jolt run through my insides. Wait, what was that? God? God let this happen to me? Oh yeah, God. There is a real God up there. I've always known that somehow. There is a real God in heaven who loves me, and he loves Christina. He knows all about this, and he can do a miracle if he wants to. In the space of about five seconds, I went from utter despair to unspeakable joy. The difference was hope. The doctors who gave my daughter a 5% chance at life were not in control. God was in control. If he willed it, Christina had a 100% chance to live. Hallelujah. Two weeks later, two nights before the major reconstructive heart surgery that was the only treatment available for Christina's condition, I had my moment of peace. Steve and I were standing in our kitchen at about midnight, eating some cereal before we went to bed. We'd been at the hospital all day, listening to more gloom and doom prognoses from the doctors. Our house was completely silent, except for us munching. Like the moment in the hospital, another feeling ran through my insides. This time it wasn't a jolt. It was the most soothing sense of peace I've ever experienced. It just fell over me, unsolicited and unexpected. I know it seems odd to say that I felt words, but I honestly did. In the total silence, my heart felt a message that said, everything is going to be fine. The feeling of relief was so profound that my only response was filling up with tears. I couldn't even speak. Just then, Steve said, this is really weird, but I just got this feeling that everything is going to be okay. I just about fell over on the floor. Those moments changed me radically and permanently. 
The mother in me wishes I could end this story by saying, God healed Christina and we all lived happily ever after. However, that was not the ending of the story God was writing on my life. Christina did come home from the hospital and lived at home with us for six months. Those were months filled with the joy of her presence and the agony of coming to terms with how sick she really was. When she was eight months old, Christina went back to her true home in heaven. My heart broke in a way I never knew it could. But the Lord had already placed a hope in my heart that could not be crushed, even by death. He was with me and would not abandon me. The eight brief months of Christina's life had been his gift of revelation to me about himself. Steve and I were blessed by a new birth less than a year later. This new daughter I named Gabrielle, after the angel Gabriel who brought Mary glad tidings of the birth of Jesus. Victoria and Stephanie soon followed, and life was busy and our hearts were full. Shortly after the fifth anniversary of Christina's death, a new friend invited me to a mom's group she was hosting at her church. I joined the group and soon found myself surrounded by other young mothers who talked all the time about their personal relationships with Jesus Christ. I was astounded by the simple truth that I had never understood in my 30 years of life. God sent Jesus to die for me because he loved me too much to lose me. I could identify with that having lost a child of my own. There's nothing I wouldn't have done to protect her and save her from dying. There is nothing God wouldn't do to protect and save me from dying and being separated from him forever. In the 15 years since I received the gospel and invited Jesus to be Lord of my life, I've been on a long journey of healing. The more I give him control, the more my life is purposed and fulfilling. When I hold back and try to do things on my own, the insecurities start to creep back in. He's always faithful, though, to remind me to depend on him and allow him to restore me. I love that we have named this new church Restoration. It is the word that describes what God has been doing with me for the past 21 years and has promised to complete. <clears throat> Thanks, Debbie. That was amazing. You know, part of being human is having a heart that is vulnerable of being broken. And I'm not talking about the organ that pumps blood through our bodies, through our arteries, and through our veins. I'm talking about that, that central command center that, that is the home of our joys, our desires, our emotions, our, our hates, our, our loves, our hopes. And the heart is that, that piece of us, that part of us that I, we can't point to physically, but we all know that it's very real and that it's very fragile. You see, our hearts can, can soar to the heights and our hearts can be dashed on the ground and shattered crushed by loss, by betrayal, by disappointment. I mean, all you have to do is kind of think a little bit about your life or the lives of those around you. And you see all kinds of examples of, of people's hearts being broken. And it happens at various in various degrees and at various levels. I mean, you have a, a teenage girl who is getting over the, the first time that someone breaks up with her. Right? That's maybe her first experience of heartbrokenness. You, you have uh, a high school senior who goes to the mailbox and, and pulls out the, the very thin letter that he got back from his dream college, and he knows that, uh-oh, 
This is not an acceptance package. This is a, a form letter telling me that I've been rejected by the college of my dreams. You know, it's, it's the childless couple who has tried every possible way to conceive. You know, every scientific method out there to try to make sure they can conceive, and yet they still are childless. You know, it's the 50-year-old single man sitting in his apartment alone, wondering if anyone will ever love him enough to marry him. It's the shocked husband reading a note from his wife that says, I'm sorry, but I'm leaving you. It's the parents who, who hold one another tight after receiving a text from their 20-year-old daughter that says, I'm leaving and I don't know if I'm ever coming back because I don't want either of you to be in my life anymore. It's Debbie and Steve coming to grips with the loss of their infant daughter, Christina. And as Debbie said, my heart broke in a way that I never knew it could. So heartbrokenness comes to us at very, in various ways, at various levels, and to various degrees. But the reality is, it will come to all of us at some time in our lives. And most of the time when we experience that, we say, you know, I never thought this would happen to me. And, and that's a worthy response. But then we typically follow up by saying, but will I ever recover? Will I ever get over this? And if so, how? How am I going to get through this season of, of heartbrokenness in my life? Joan Didion uh, published a book in 2005 called The Year of Magical Thinking. It's Didion's memoir of a year following the death of her husband of nearly 40 years. His name was John Gregory Dunn. And he died of a massive heart attack in December 2003. And this book that, that Joan Didion wrote became a bestseller. Some of you may have read this book, actually. But in this book, Didion traces her personal process of coming to grips with the excruciating loss of her husband, as well as the serious illness of her only child, Quintana. And sadly, Quintana passed away shortly after the book was published. But her book begins with, with these, these words. Life changes fast. Life changes in an instant. You sit down to dinner, and life as you know it ends. The question of self-pity. And from there, she goes on in her book to recount cherished memories of her marriage, of her family, of her professional life. But as you're working through the book, you ask yourself, does she come to peace with her loss? Does she find healing for her broken heart? Well, one thing becomes very certain as you read through the book, and that is, and that, is that she does not find healing in what remained of the Episcopalian faith of her youth. Actually, Didion is very soothed by the idea that life is accidental. And in that case, she is autonomous. We are all autonomous. And the course and the experience of our lives is, is formed simply by our individual choices. And in light of that, at one point in the book, she writes with an almost bitter tone, no eye was on the sparrow. No eye was watching me. Now, you may not understand what she's referring to here, but what, actually what she's referring to is a classic gospel song called His Eye is on the Sparrow, which declares that God, play, pay, excuse me, God pays close attention to every living thing, even a creature as insignificant as a sparrow. And Didion clearly rejects that there is a God who takes interest in her life, in her choices, and in her loss. She's heartbroken. She's experienced tremendous loss. But as far as she's concerned, the world and certainly God are indifferent to her loss. 
And Didion deals with her broken heart by just going with the change. Uh, she, she presses on crafting what is left of her life through her own choices, but certainly not by the comfort and the strength and the guidance of God. In her mind, there is no eye on the sparrow. But I'd like to challenge Joan Didion's perspective this morning, for I believe that the Bible does indeed offer us hope. In fact, there's a story of a woman that I believe is a classic example of a broken heart. And I want us to take a look at her story today and see how she responds to brokenness. And it's another story of a woman and a baby. We heard Debbie's story, and now I want you to hear the story of Hannah. Now, Hannah's story is found in the Old Testament. If you have a Bible, you can open up there now to 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to look at chapter 1 and a little bit of chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 1. It's in the Old Testament near the beginning of the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay because the Bible verses I'll read will be up on the screen and you can follow along as I read them later on. But let me give you a little background so you understand the context of Hannah's story. Hannah's story takes place right at the end of what is known as the period of the judges in Israel's history. This is a time when Israel struggled to be consistently obedient to the Lord. In fact, there's a summary statement of that time that says, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Now, it's roughly about 1100 B.C., and God is about to bring the Israelites into a time of monarchy, a time of kings. So God's going to raise up a leader to guide the Israelites through this transitional time, a prophet and a priest by the name of Samuel. And Samuel's mother will be an obscure, rural, barren Jewish woman named Hannah. And this is going to be her story that we'll talk about. Hannah is married to a man named Elkanah. Elkanah has two wives, Hannah and Penina. Penina is able to bear children, but Hannah is barren. Now every year, Elkanah would take his family to a place called Shiloh, and there in Shiloh they would worship the Lord and offer sacrifices. And this is where we pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 4. It says this, Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters, But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Let's just stop there for a minute. Hannah is barren. And being barren in her ancient culture was for a married woman probably the the height of emotional and social agony. And you ask yourself, why? Why would barrenness be such a big deal for this woman, Hannah? Well, for a woman in their culture, it was the primary way in which she contributed to the good of the family and the honor of her husband. An heir was needed for the family line. And Hannah was the one that was supposedly to contribute that heir. A family's economic health depended on it. More children meant more laborers for the family trade, and more laborers meant more money. And I say to yourself, well, wasn't there any emotional side to this as a mother? Didn't she just want a child to love and to care for? And yes, she absolutely did. And that's certainly a a big emphasis today in our culture. But in her, her culture, having children, bearing children, really was a matter of life and death. So a woman who bore many children in her culture would be considered a hero. 
but a wife with no children would be considered worthless. As brutal as that may sound to us today, that's how they viewed things. For a married woman, it was the single most important part of her existence. And Hannah was denied this. She's heartbroken. But not only that, there is this irritating, irritating second wife, Penina. Now, evidently, Hannah was Elkanah's first wife. And when she was unable to conceive, he took a second wife, hoping that she would be able to give him children. And Penina does indeed do that. She gives multiple children to her husband. But this causes tremendous heartache for Hannah. You know, the Bible never specifically condemns polygamy, but it goes out of its way to show that polygamy is a really bad idea and causes nothing but trouble for all those involved. And it's certainly true here because Penina provokes Hannah, her rival. And you can just imagine what Penina might have done, you know, when she would look at Hannah and say, I've given Elkanah something you could never give him. I've given him children. Yeah, he may love you more, but what I've done for him, you'll never be able to do. So, uh. <laughs> See, what we got going on here is little uh, Real Housewives of Israel, circa 1100 BC. <laughs> That's basically what's going on here between Penina and, and Hannah. And, and Penina's taunting drove Hannah to the point that she wept and refused to eat, especially when they would go to Shiloh and have this time of celebration and offering and worship to the Lord. So Elkanah tries to comfort her. He, he steps in and he says, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? So far, so good for Elkanah, right? He's entering into his wife's pain. He's trying to comfort her. He's trying to love her. He sees that she's brokenhearted. He wants to do what he can to love her and to lift her up. But then he gives this final statement that he just blows it. He says, don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? And, and I'm sorry, but you know, when your wife is really hurting, the last thing husbands you want to do is say, what about me? Aren't I enough to overcome all your pain? You know, he really kind of blows it here. He should have just stayed there and listened to his wife and comfort her because the bottom line is, as much as spousal love is a wonderful thing and a great thing for Elkanah to offer to his wife, it would not make up for the loss that she was experiencing because, again, of the pressure of their culture. And so Hannah is inconsolable. She is truly heartbroken. You see, what her heart longs for the most has been denied her. You know, in our own lives, so often our own heartbrokenness is related to not getting what our heart most longs for or losing what our heart most longs for. All Hannah wanted was a child, and it wasn't happening. So what does she do? Well, let's continue in the story. Let's pick it up at verse 9 now of 1 Samuel chapter 1. We'll read to verse 20. It says, once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the, Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying, and her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. 
I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early in the morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and they went back to their home at, at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. Verse 9 says that Hannah stood up. Now you read that and you say, okay, big deal. She stood up. That's a normal human action. That's what people do when they're reclining. Because back then when they would eat their meals, especially a, a celebration worship meal like this, most, most likely they were reclining at the table, laying kind of on an elbow, that kind of thing. So for her to stand up is seemingly no big deal. But the author is making a very big deal about this action. It's not just a physical action. It, it represents Hannah taking action. Hannah doing something about her situation. Hannah, frankly, you know, she was, you could say, on the ground, down in her spirit, depressed, thinking that, you know, in, in sort of like the, an emotional fetal position, so to speak, and yet she, she now gets up ready to move towards God, ready to, to move out of her heartbrokenness. She's, she's wrestling herself out of this situation. Something comes over her. Something comes over her and causes her to want to break free from, this, from the circumstances that have left her broken. And she does the right thing. She stands up in order to turn to God. You know, sometimes if we're going to find healing for our broken heart, it takes that initial step of movement to, to rise up from the circumstances and move toward God. To take action, to stop being passive. And woe is me. And how it does that? What does she do? She turns to God. She brings all of her brokenness to the Lord. Verse 10, in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. She, she's not hiding anything or holding anything back. God, you are getting the real me right now. She brings a fresh sense of intensity, a fresh sense of purposeness. God, I, I am laying all of my pain before you. And look what she prays. Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant. I want to just for a minute take apart that prayer because it's really important, the perspective she takes with her prayer. She starts with Lord Almighty. Lord Almighty means Lord of hosts. You know, we just sang about the Lord of hosts earlier today, the God of angel armies. You know, as we sing that phrase, that's really talking about God as the, the Lord of hosts. And hosts means armies. The armies belonging to the great creator God, composed maybe of angels, composed maybe of men. But, but when you say Lord Almighty, you're, you're expressing the infinite resources and power which are available to God. God is so sovereign over all the powers of heaven and earth. And this is the transcendence of God, that God is above and beyond everything that is on the earth. He is the Lord Almighty. That's how she starts her prayer. She acknowledges God's power. But then she goes on. Look upon your servant's misery and remember me. Forget not your servant. You know what this means? This means that Hannah is well aware of the awesome power and majesty of God. 
But at the same time, she believes that God cares about her. She believes that the broken heart of an obscure, rural, barren Israelite woman matters to the Almighty God. That his eye is on the sparrow. And if his eye is on the sparrow, then I know he watches me. See, this is the imminence of God. First, you have the transcendence of God, Lord Almighty, and now the imminence of God, where God is as close as your next breath, right there with you, ready to enter into your, enter into your pain and be a part of your life in a very real and tangible way. You know, Debbie, in her testimony, shared that she had a moment of hope, and that's when she realized that, that God is real and that God knows what's going on in her life and God loves her, but then she also said that God has the power to do something about Christina, her daughter, who was struggling so much. That was her moment of hope. This is Hannah's moment of hope when she prays this way. You see, God is infinitely powerful, but God is also infinitely tender. Do you believe that today? That God is infinitely powerful, but he is also infinitely tender. Some of us have forgotten that, either one side or the other. But Hannah didn't. So what are we to do with our broken heart today? Our deepest felt emotions of pain and loss and betrayal and disappointment. Well, we need to pour them out to a God who will listen. But, but we don't want to pour them out simply by ranting on God and screaming at God. Sometimes maybe we need a little bit of that just to kind of get it out. But our prayer needs to go somewhere. We need to pray according to who God is, like Hannah did. Praying those emotions out in a way that aligns with who God is. You are the Lord Almighty. All the powers of, of heaven and earth are at your disposal. Please act according to your power. You are the God of unconditional love and mercy. Meet me in my pain, God. You are a God of perfect will and purpose. Help me to believe that you are at work. In light of who you are, God, direct my steps and govern my feelings. That's how Hannah prayed, and that's how we need to pray in the face of our broken hearts and our deepest longings. And so where does Hannah go with the prayer? Well, in light of who God is and how he works, she makes a vow. Again, verse 11, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Lord, if you give me a son... I will give him right back to you. Now, you may be saying, wait a second. So does this mean that she cut a deal with God? That she's bargaining with God? Is that what we're supposed to do? Bargain with God and, and, and cut a deal with him? Well, before you get too upset about that, think about what she said. If I have a son, I will give him to the Lord for all of his life, and no razor will be used on his head. And you're thinking, what is this razor thing? What's that all about? What she's referring to is what's called a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow was a way in which, it really was a process by which someone who was not from a priestly line could in fact become a priest or a lay priest by taking this Nazarite vow. And so she's offering up her son and saying, he, I, I, will get, I will put him into a, a situation where he will take the Nazarite vow and ultimately be your servant, Lord. He, he will be set apart for service to the Lord. And anyone who took a Nazarite vow, they, they couldn't drink it eat or drink anything from the grapevine. They would never allow a razor to come to their head and they would, have all kind, they would distance themselves from anything, any dead body. That was just part of the vow they would take. And she's saying, 
This is what I want for my son. This is how she wants to give her son to the Lord. So she's not cutting a deal with God. She's actually falling in line with God's purposes and making God's will more important than her deepest longing. You see, for a Nazarite child uh, would, would serve at the temple, excuse me, serve at the tabernacle. She wouldn't get the opportunity to raise him and have all the joys of, of raising a child and that whole emotional experience. She's ready and willing to give all that up. Who'll be the Lord's? To be used by the Lord however the Lord sees fit. So do you see what she's done? She's taken the deepest longing of her heart. In fact, what she thinks is the cure for her broken heart to have a son or to have a child, and she's given it to God. She no longer wants the baby just for social reasons, for emotional reasons. She wants to further the purposes of God. She says, God, I will give my deepest longing to you. It's no longer about my emotional needs, my wants, my desires. The cause and even the cure of her broken heart in her mind, she is now giving back to God and saying, he's yours. She's in a place of surrender before the Lord. Now look what happens. As she's praying, Eli, the priest, uh, sees her praying silently and he mistakes, mistakes that she's drunk she assures Eli she's simply a woman uh, deeply troubled, pouring out a heart to the Lord, praying intensely with great anguish and grief. Eli realizes his mistake, and he, he prays a blessing over her. Go in peace. May God grant you what you asked of him. And then pick it up in verse 18. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Do you see what happened to Hannah? Her heart was changed. Her disposition is different. Her broken heart has experienced healing. She eats. She's no longer downcast. She worships the Lord. You know, Debbie, in her testimony, talked about she had a moment of peace in her struggle with Christina, where her and Steve were in the kitchen. They just realized, you know what? God's in control God's going to take care of this. And they both have this amazing sense of peace that came over them. Well, this is Hannah's moment of peace. She's free from her brokenness now. But, but you've got to remember the timing. Don't forget the timing here. She, she does this. She has this sense of peace. She, she's no longer downcast. Before the baby ever arrives, before she ever conceives, there's no guarantee yet that she's going to have a child. And yet, she's at peace. Well, what's happened? Well, there's been a change of focus. God, you are now the center of my life. Whatever your will is, I will follow. Because now I know that you hear me, that you remember me, that you care about me. And I give my brokenness and all of its causes to you. I want to be in line with your purposes for me, most of all, not just have my deepest longings met. Can you do that today? Can you give your deepest longing to God? Whatever you believe is the cure for your broken heart today, can you say, God, it's yours? I will not cling to this any longer as, as my Savior. You, Lord, are my only Savior. So remember me in my misery. Do your will in my life. And I'll just give it all back to you. Debbie talked about the fact that one of the things she's learned through her whole crisis with Christina was giving control over to God, about, about letting God restore her. 
Sometimes, you know what? We're not broken enough. Sometimes in the midst of our brokenness, we're not quite broken to the degree that we're ready to give it all over to the Lord and say, God, I'm, not gonna, I'm no, no longer going to cling to this as my Savior, this, this uh, relationship, this hope that I might have, this loss that I've gone through, whatever it might be. God, I'm going to actually give it over to you. But sometimes we're not quite there yet. We want to cling to it a little longer. Well, Hannah got to that place where she gave it all to the Lord. And let's see what happens. She does indeed conceive and give birth to a son, Samuel. She has every intention of bringing him to Shiloh and dedicating him to the Lord. But first, she she has to wean him. And in their culture, that would probably take about three years or so. But when it's done, she takes Samuel to be dedicated to the Lord. Let's pick it up in verse 26. It says this. Uh, She brings brings the boy uh, to, to Eli the priest. And she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. So this is what Hannah did. When God showed up in her life, she remained true to him and his purposes. She didn't pull back and say, oh, now that I got what I wanted, God, forget about that little promise I made to you before. She remained, excuse me, God remained the center of her life, not her longings. She was fully surrendered to God. And that was the key to healing her broken heart. The release of her deepest longing. See, that deepest longing had really become a God in her life, an idol in her life. And the surrender now to the purpose and to the will of of Almighty God, the God who hears her, the God who loves her, was ultimately what allowed her to experience that healing. You see, here's the deal. God heals surrendered hearts. God heals surrendered hearts. Not hearts that are shaking a fist at him, not hearts that are demanding what they want from God. That's hard to break through. But God heals a surrendered heart. You want God to heal your heart today? Give it to him. Surrender that that damaged or, or missing deepest longing of your heart to him. See, the true path to heal a broken heart is by surrendering it to God. Are you convinced that, that the only way, the only cure for your broken heart is, is that thing you long for? You know, my loved one who passed away, I don't know, somehow I've got to have her back. I've got to have him back. That's the only way I'll ever be cured of this brokenness. Release him or her to the Lord and give your future to God. My betrayer must pay for what he did. Give that person and give justice to the Lord. Give it to him. My marriage must be saved. Give it to him. I have to have a child or I must find a spouse or my rebellious child must return home. Give it to him. Give not only the cause of the broken heart, but what you think is the cure of the broken heart as well to God. And see what he does. See, because God heals a surrendered heart. Not a heart in rebellion, not a demanding heart. How did Hannah do this? Well, we find it in her prayer song in chapter 2. Just a few moments here, just to look at her prayer that she prays. First couple of verses, 
It says this, Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. See, see, all that Hannah thinks, does, and says is centered on the great act of God on her behalf. In her brokenness, she has run to the Lord, and he has been her rock, her refuge, and her strength. But she goes on. Look at verses 4 through 8. Look at the contrast that she prays here. The, the bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry hunger no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. Hannah celebrates how God balances out life by his own measures. God reverses things. He turns losers into winners and winners into losers. The strong are made weak and the weak strong. The full are made hungry and the hungry are full. The barren is made fertile and the fertile no longer give birth. And and on it goes. See, all of life is in God's hands. Our current position, our current stage in life are not barriers to God. They are not permanently fixed or unchangeable for the Lord is able to reverse it. And that's good news for the brokenhearted. You see, Hannah was in a place of disgrace and brokenness. But in her suffering, God brought life and hope. Her brokenness, her brokenness met with the purposes of God. See, and when she fully surrendered to the purposes of God, that's when her life was reversed. That's when Baron, the Baron, experienced life. See, Hannah's story points us to the greatest reversal of all, the ultimate reversal, the cross. See, Jesus was disgraced, suffered, tortured, heartbroken by betrayal, by desertion, and ultimately died the agonizing death of a common criminal. But he was surrendered to the Father's will. He knew what was coming. He knew the pain, the anguish, and the heartache that, it, that would come to him as our Savior, as our Messiah, as the cross loomed in the distance. And it says that he prayed, not my will, but yours be done, Father. See, in his, in his surrender, Jesus experienced the, the disgrace, the rejection, the pain, and the suffering that we deserved. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, we have something today that Hannah didn't have. We have the cross. We have not only the the historical event of Jesus' death on the cross, but now an eternal reminder that God brings life from death. That, That in the ugliness and the horror of the cross was reversed by God in the glorious resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus was raised to life, and when he did that, he vanquished the power of sin and death. It is the ultimate reversal. See, that's where our surrender begins today, for every one of us. Realizing that you and I are lost, really, in our own sin. 
We are bound for eternal judgment. And we cannot work our way out of it. However we may try, we cannot work our way out of the fact that we are sinners who, frankly, are deserving judgment by a holy God. However, what we can do is bow the knee to Jesus. To surrender our pride and say, Jesus, I, I can't do it without you. I cannot be forgiven. I cannot follow God. I cannot be the man or woman you want me to be without you in my life. And we can come to the cross and say, Jesus, I know there that you died in my place, that you paid for my sin so that I could be forgiven, that you rose again from the dead to conquer the power of sin and death, that in you I can be made brand new. Jesus, I believe that you paid for my sins on the cross. I believe that you rose again from the dead. Help me now to follow you and live for you wherever you may lead. You see, this is the gospel. This is the good news. And it's meant for the brokenhearted. It's meant for the guilty, the rebel, the tired, whoever you may be. This, but this is where surrender begins. This is where our healing begins. Healing of our sin-cursed souls, but also healing of our broken hearts. For what the gospel shows us is that God can be trusted. God is perfectly capable of bringing life from death, light from darkness, hope from hopelessness, and to heal the broken. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've just kind of been listening to this, and now maybe it's starting to finally penetrate your heart, I, I encourage you today, make that decision. Ask Jesus Christ to come into your life as your Savior, as, as your rescuer from sin, as your closest friend, as the leader of your life, knowing that what he did for you is all that matters, what he did on the cross and through his resurrection. You, no matter who you are, where you've been, or what you've done, can be made brand new in him and start a new life with him. And finally, if you are heartbroken today, I encourage you to rise up and take action like Hannah did when she stood up. Take your brokenness to God in prayer. Pour out your heart to the Lord Almighty who remembers you and is as close as your next breath. Because no matter what Joan Didion or anyone else may think, his eye is on the sparrow. And I know that he watches you. It's safe to give your deepest longing to him. Surrender it all to him. Give it to God. Believe that even in the face of great loss, great betrayal, great disappointment, he will heal your heart. He will raise you up. He will do his work in your life. And in that, you'll find joy. You'll find satisfaction. You'll find healing. Let's pray. As we are in an attitude of prayer right now, I just want to encourage you to be thinking about where you're at in your life right now. And I just want to speak to those who are here today who, who, who don't, have never made a decision to trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And as we're in this, this attitude of prayer, we're before the Lord now quietly, I want you to search your heart and ask yourself if, if it's time now for you to believe. It's time now for you to say yes to Jesus. If you're ready to do that, if God's Spirit has led you to that point where you know, yeah, I, I believe in who Jesus is and what he did for me on the cross and that he rose from the dead, I want him to come into my life and make me brand new to forgive my sins and heal my heart and heal my life. 
If you're ready to do that today, you may want to just pray a simple prayer in the quietness of your own heart right now, a prayer like this. Father God, I know that you love me. And I believe today, God, that Jesus is indeed my Savior. That Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for my sins. That Jesus rose from the dead to conquer the power of sin and death. And Jesus, right now, come into my life and be my Savior. Rescue me from the penalty and the judgment of my sin. Make me clean and whole. Be my closest friend, Jesus. As I pour out my heart to you, I know that you'll listen now. Be the leader of my life, Jesus. I want to follow you wherever you may lead me to fill your purpose for my life. Jesus, transform me now from the inside out to be the man or woman you created me to be so that I can follow you and live for you. I just want you to know that if you prayed that prayer today from a heart of faith, God has already begun a transforming work in your life. You are his son. You are his true son, his true daughter. Father, I pray for each of us here today. All of us come, Lord, with hearts that maybe have been broken or are currently broken. And Lord, we want to find healing in you. But Lord, that's going to require surrender. Surrender to you and your purposes in our life, your will in our life, giving back to you our, our deepest longings and letting you do what you want with those situations, those scenarios, as painful as they are, God, I know we need to give them back to you today, and I pray that you would empower and strengthen every person here to do that, to surrender their heart to you, and let you, by your perfect wisdom, your perfect love, your perfect plan, bring healing to our hearts, to give us hope, Lord, a renewed sense of hope. Lord, may we leave here today with that hope, knowing that you love us, that you're always at work, that we can trust in you and count on you, God. You'll never leave us nor forsake us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.